0: So some of you probably have asked this question. Why do we have a statement of faith in the first place? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or anything like that, but that is a valid question to ask. Why in the world do we have a statement statement of faith at all? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why we have a statement of faith. One, because it gives a clear explanation of the type of church you're getting yourself into. Many of you have visited before and now are members. I'm sure at some point you went on our website. You probably maybe heard a sermon or two. You probably saw what we were doing with our podcast or YouTube or something. I'm sure that you probably have visited the section where it talks about kids, because those who have kids, you're wondering what do this church do for children? And eventually, I'm sure you got around to the beliefs. What does this church believe? So one, it gives a clear explanation of what you're getting yourself into. That's one reason. The second reason, the pastors, the elders, the leaders, the ministers of this church here We do not want to ever hear the infamous words. And if you've been in church for a long time, you know these words. If you're new to church, hopefully this is the last time you hear these words today. And the words are, oh, I did not know that you guys believe Listen, if you ever want to get under the pastor's skin, I'm being vulnerable here, okay? If you ever want to get under our skin, you can just say those things. Oh, I didn't know you guys believe that. So this is an attempt for us to be clear on what we believe and what you're getting yourself into. And so you don't have any leg to stand on to ever say those words. Because we sprinkle what we believe in membership class, in welcome receptions. We even do sermon series on it. I know a couple of years ago in my community group, we went through the whole statement of faith in our community group. You have no excuse. All right? So you can't say, oh, I did not know you believe that. Third reason. Third reason why we have a statement of faith. Because it gives us uh, guardrails, if you will, right? Um, There is guardrails that we have that kind of keeps us on track so that we don't go into the wrong thinking, right? It kind of keeps us on track. If you think about it like this, think about it like in a family. In a family, there are certain things that you have to believe and that you have to do even to, to, to be a part of that family. Any family that you can think of. I'm no, I know that there are certain things that you have to believe and to do to be a part of the Cloud family. I know that for a fact. Or the O'Brien family. Or the Rose family. Or the Chaney family. Whatever it is, there are certain things that you have to believe and do to bear that last name, or at least to represent that you bear that last name. I want to give you an example from the Tally family of one element, just one element of what it means to be a part of the Tally family. So, for us, you have to. And Ariel gonna, she's going to get indoctrinated with this pretty soon. You have to be able to know how to play Monopoly. Um, you have to believe in Monopoly. And you have to know how to play Monopoly. And when I say know how to play Monopoly, Sam, I'm talking like you really have to know how to play. All right? You can't just like be average. You got to be really good at Monopoly. It's just part of the tally ritual. It's tradition. And hopefully, this is being done in the context of a healthy, nurturing environment so Ariel can know what to believe and all that type of stuff when it comes to Monopoly. Amen? Y'all all have something in y'all family, too, that y'all like and do okay, don't look at me because I like Monopoly. But for RCC, your belief in the statement of faith is one element of what it means to be a part of this church family. And through belief in in a healthy environment where we can dialogue, ask questions, and so that you can know what you believe and why you believe it, this is the place where where we are. So today is on the redemption of Christ. In its simplest form, redemption. Somebody say redemption. Somebody say redemption. Redemption is the act of being saved, rescued, delivered from something or some body. That's what we mean when we talk about this word redemption. Redemption. So the first aspect that we have to start with, I believe, is what we call the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. So Psalm 111, verse 9, it says this. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his kingdom. Name Psalm 111 is talking about the mighty works of God, the miraculous things God has done, the supernatural acts and redeeming acts of God. And he has brought his people redemption, saving, rescuing. But before we can really go into that, it's important to understand that in eternity past, This covenant of redemption, there was some type of agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some type of agreement that Christ would come and suffer and die and rise from the grave, conquer sin and death, and save a particular people for his own possession. Some type of agreement. Right? Pastor Ramon preached on the triune God in our series that opened up in what we believe. And there was this trinitarian relationship and agreement that the Trinity was involved not only in creation, but the Trinity was involved in our salvation. God the Father graciously mercifully chooses those who will be Save, who will be adopted into the family of God. God does this graciously. Then Jesus comes down from heaven, lives a perfect life, a life that me and you cannot live because of our sin, and Jesus literally died. His blood was shed. His blood was poured out on the cross, Jesus literally died. And through his death, he atoned for their sins. He sacrificed on our behalf. And the Holy Spirit, some say the Holy Ghost, applied all of the benefits to the Jesus follower. It's a whole other sermon to talk about the benefits that the Holy Spirit gave brings so many. In a couple of weeks, Pastor Bob's going to talk about the Holy Spirit, but you should know that there are benefits of being a part of any family. For instance, for those that are members of Roosevelt Community Church, you get free parking. That's a benefit especially being in downtown, because if you haven't noticed, things are going up. People got to pay for parking now, right? That's a benefit of being in the family of God. What I'm trying to explain to you is the Holy Spirit applies the benefits of being a follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit seals us in the family of God know that this happened, this agreement, this pact, this eternal decree that the Trinity had, this happened before any of us in this room were thought of. Before you were conceived, this was in the mind of God one way you can kind of look at it is God was thinking of you before you were ever thinking about God. God was thinking of you personally before you were ever thinking of him. As I mentioned before, Or let me give you some Bible, actually. Let me give you some Bible, because we're biblically rooted here, right? So, Acts chapter 2, verse 23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite, according to the definite, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The crucifixion of Jesus was not God's plan B. It was not God's plan C. It was always in the mind of God. It was set in motion with this covenant of redemption, this agreement that Jesus was going to come and be slain. <laughs> Scripture says that he was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. This was always in the plan C. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Before the ages began. Before the ages began. Again, this was always in the plan in the mind of God. Regarding the covenant of redemption, know that God was thinking of you before you were ever thinking of him. As I mentioned, my wife just gave birth to our baby girl. I told y'all there's going to be a bunch of pictures just coming. I told y'all. I warned y'all, right? They They're going to be just pictures, just, just cuts, right? But as I mentioned... She had our our baby girl, and before Ariel was conceived, we were thinking of her before she had a clue about us. Me and her mother came into an agreement of the ways that we were going to protect her, that we were going to love her, the way we were going to care for her, the way that we were going to rescue her and deliver her from the troubles of this world as best as we can, because we were thinking of her before she ever was born. Different plans that we have for her, what I'm trying to say is, in a similar way, God was thinking of you in the covenant of redemption before we could ever think of him. Listen, don't let this doctrine or this teaching get too philosophical or too abstract. In fact, I actually think this is very personal. And I know some of you in this room have grown up in places and environments where people were supposed to think of you. People were supposed to care for you. People were supposed to love you, and they never did. Mom didn't think of you. Dad didn't think of you. Stepmom, stepdad didn't think of you. Your coach didn't think of you. Your school teacher didn't think of you. And the list can go on and on and on about all of the people that did not think of you. And before we go down that rabbit hole, What I want to encourage you with is, dear brother, dear sister, don't believe the lie of the enemy. Even if all those people didn't think of you, let me submit to you that there was one person that did think of you. The God of the universe. The creator of heaven and earth. The maker of this world. The one that created you In his image and likeness, he thought of you and your salvation way before you were thinking of him. Amen? This teaching, this doctrine of the covenant of redemption, it is is personal. And I want to shower you with grace for those that think no one thinks of them. Not true. God. God thinks of you so much so that he brought you into his family (laughs) he chose you he drafted you on his team that is something special so in talking about the redemption of christ it's important for us to start an eternity past but now let's talk about how redemption is accomplished Redemption is accomplished, and Exodus 14. That's the second passage that I gave you guys earlier. I think this is a good place to talk about how redemption is accomplished, and this is what we would call the crossing of the Red Sea. So, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus 14. And just some background on the book of Exodus. It means to depart out, um, and God is a story about how God. Um, raises up a guy by the name of Moses. Moses is what we would call the leader and liberator of the people of Israel. He's kind of like a prophet. And Moses has a problem. One of Moses' problems is he has a, a speech impediment. He doesn't think God can use him. But let me encourage you this: with this. God can use anybody for his ultimate purposes. No matter what problem or issue or challenge that you think you may have, just like Moses, God can use you even if you have a speech impediment. So God goes to Moses and reveals himself to him in Exodus chapter 3. This is what we call the burning bush. And he reveals himself to Moses and he wants Moses to go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the king of Egypt at this, at this time. And Pharaoh has the people of God in bondage, and in slavery. By the way, Egypt is the most powerful empire at this time. So Moses goes and he's obedient, even though he's reluctant and unwilling. He still goes. And God warns Pharaoh through Moses that there's 10 plagues coming and it's going to damage the entire society in Egypt after the 10 plagues happen, Pharaoh decides to let God's people go. So he does that. And now Moses is leading the people out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. And then Pharaoh has this bright idea, and he says, basically, why did I do that? I need to get these people back so that they can be slaves again. So Pharaoh gets his army, his Egyptian army, and it's hundreds of people, and they're going after the people of God. Now, keep in mind that in Exodus 14 is where we see this story of the crossing of the Red Sea. So Exodus 14, read verse 4, it says, God says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians should know that I am the Lord. One thing about God is he's about his glory. And the idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart is showing that God is sovereign and in control over everything. It says in verse 8 and in verse 17 that he heartens Pharaoh's heart because he has authority. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. In this story, God is the one that gets the glory over the Egyptian army and Pharaoh. And he uses Moses to be the leader and liberator to do this. As he, do, as he do this, as he does this, is something that is striking that we can bring out in this story. But before we do that, I, I kind of want to uh, put us in, this, in the context of what is happening here. Remember, this is the most powerful Egyptian army at the time. So they have all of the latest technology. They have chariots. I know nobody drives in chariots now, but back then, that was like, you know, riding a Tesla or something. So they have chariots. They have weaponry. They have all these different things. Keep in mind the people of God are on foot. They're walking. Walking fast, I guess, right? And then you have, in verse 10, of Exodus 14, you have the Egyptian army, the text says, draws near to the people of God. And then the people of God have to look up and see the Egyptian army. And then it says, they feared greatly. (laughs) They were so fearful that they almost felt like they were going to die. Also, the army's coming, hundreds of people with chariots and weaponry. And then there's another dilemma that's happening because there's this large body of water in front of them. So they're kind of in between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. They feared greatly. Have you ever felt so feared greatly at all in your life? I remember one time my wife, we were at an event and we were leaving the event and apparently um, we got a notification that there was a big uh, dust storm that was coming and we're way out in Queen Creek and we live in South Phoenix so there's a bit of of a drive. So I think me thinking that we can try to hurry up and, you know, get the gas and get home, I decide to 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 get the gas. And as soon as we get the gas and we get on the road, all of a sudden, the visibility began to get really low. And we get another notification, and it says that, hey, you probably should pull over <laughs> and wait about an hour because the... The, the dust storm is, is starting to get heavy. And before you know it, I see a bunch of cars on the, in front of us. They all pull to the side. And then, here we go, the dust storm. Now, if you ever been in a situation where you, you were a little scared or, or fearful, the uh, uh, initial response is you just start praying. So that's exactly what Celeste and I started doing. We just started to to, to pray. I didn't even know what we was actually saying, but we just wanted to pray to the Lord, right? And as we were doing this, at one point, the car literally started to shake. And in this moment, I'm thinking, okay, this might be it. I'm thinking in my mind that this car is going to shake, and then we're just going to just fly off somewhere else. The dust storm is literally that bad. I and mean, if you have never been in a dust storm like that, you're looking at me like, yeah, I'm telling you, it was fearful. I felt like the Israelites. I feared greatly. feel greatly because you feel like you're going to die. I truly believe that this is how the people of God felt in this moment as they are seen the Egyptian army come so of course they complain and they complain to Moses they even say stupid stuff like we should have just stayed in Egypt and served Pharaoh why are we doing this but Moses says stand firm fear not you will never have to see the Egyptians again God is going to fight for you Verse 15, by the way, in this whole chapter in Exodus 14, three times Yahweh speaks directly to Moses. Verse 15 is the second time that he speaks to him. He says, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel, go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and his loss of chariots and horsemen. You keep reading, you'll see that God is the one that redeems the people of Israel. He's the one that delivers them. He's the one that saves them from Their enemies. Verse 30, thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw that the Egyptians were dead on the seashore because he used Moses as this prophet to lead them into the promised land. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant, Moses. Redemption is accomplished by the mighty acts of God. The supernatural, miraculous acts of God. Redemption in the Old Testament is the act of God by which he delivered his people from bondage. The exodus of Israel from Egypt and the later deliverance of Jerusalem from exile in Babylon are seen as definitive examples of God's redeeming acts. Redemption is accomplished. It is true that redemption indeed has been accomplished at the crossing of the Red Sea. But I would also submit to you that redemption has been accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is what we call the atonement, the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus provides for anyone who would repent and believe in him. The Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God that's without blemish and spotless at the cross is where we see redemption accomplished. Jesus stood in our place as a substitute All the sins were laid upon him. And Isaiah says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Redemption is accomplished at the cross where there is healing, where there is joy, where there is peace, where there is pain, where there is trauma, where there is hope. At the cross of Jesus is where we can get our strength and our sustenance from. Because God the Father raised him on the third day, proving that his sacrifice is sufficient that his sacrifice is sufficient, that it is enough. And all you have to do is repent and believe in him. That that 19th century England preacher Charles Spurgeon said, the way to access God is by atonement. And by no other method. We cannot draw near upon the Most High except along the blood sprinkled way of sacrifice. There is life in the blood. There is life in the blood. So, the good news of the gospel is that you can be made right with God. You can be in right relationship no matter what you have done. I know many people are here to have a track record, so to speak. But God, in his mercy and his grace, erases your track record through faith and repentance in him. Amen? And that is good news as we think about redemption being accomplished. So redemption was set in motion with the agreement between the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We see the examples of how redemption is accomplished through the crossing of the Red Sea and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But our last passage this morning shows how redemption has been applied. How redemption has been applied. There's many ways that redemption has been applied. We could talk about faith and repentance. We could talk about justification. I'm actually going to talk about that next week. We could talk about sanctification. We could talk about all the different ways that redemption is applied, but one way that I want to just talk about it today is the effective call of God. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9, if you have that last passage you want to go ahead and turn over there it's just one verse 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9 it says God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our lord you know redemption has been applied if you have willingly responded to the truths of the gospel, and you are in fellowship. You are in fellowship with Jesus Christ and, I would say, the family of God. You're in community. You are in family. The church is not like a family. The church is a family. The effective call of God is a receipt that you have been redeemed. It is your receipt. Two elements here to think about when we think about the call of, of God. So there's a general call, right, where if you were to go out and just proclaim the gospel to to, to anybody, there's a, a a universal call that anybody can can hear, and that is one aspect. And to be clear, God calls His people to go out and to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples. That is something that we should do, right? So, but there's a general call. But there's also what we call the effective call of God. And this is an act of God that guarantees the proper response. It guarantees the proper response. So for parents in the room, um, Let's say you are talking to your children and you want them to clean up their room because it's messy and all that type of stuff, right? So you say, hey, go ahead and go, go clean up your room and there's no response. They don't, they, just, they it's almost like they didn't hear you at all. Like they just didn't do, didn't do it. There's no response at all, right? Uh, let's just call that the general call, all right? Or you tell your kids, hey, I want you to clean up your room. If you clean up your room, we're going to go to Legoland, we're going to go to Disneyland, we're going to go somewhere. Um, I'll buy you a game for your Xbox or your PS5, whatever, right? And then they go in their room, and they actually clean it up, that's what we call the effective call. It it was the proper response that you wanted. It was effective. Or if you want to sound smart, it was the uh, um, thing. I can't even say it. The word, uh, I guess I don't sound smart. Uh, Efficacious, there it is, the efficacious call of, uh, of God. That means that it was effective, right? It guarantees the response that you want. When it comes to this here, in terms of redemption being applied, this is how the effective, this is one way how redemption is applied is through the effective call. You think about it in Acts chapter 17, right? The Apostle Paul, right? He is preaching the gospel in Athens. It actually says that his spirit was provoked. His spirit was provoked because he saw a bunch of idols, a bunch of statues. It was one to the unknown God. And he was provoked so much that he had to preach Jesus. And as he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection, some of the people there said, you're saying some strange things, but we want to give you another hearing. So he goes to this hearing with all these different people, and as he's proclaiming Jesus, interestingly enough, he talks about the creation, how God is the creator in Acts 17 verse 24, and then how he calls all people to repent. Then he quotes one of their poets and all of this stuff. At the end of that, when you read, it says that some people mocked him because people will mock the gospel. Some people waited, meaning like, man, that's some interesting stuff. Let me process that a little bit more. And then the text says, some people believe. Those that actually believe in what Paul was saying, that was the effective call of God. That was how redemption was applied to those people. You understand what I'm saying? So when we think about redemption being applied, it is the efficacious call of God. It guarantees the proper response because it originates with God. It originates and starts with God. So as we come to a close this morning, uh, let this teaching of redemption sober us. Let it actually sober us as we rejoice in how God made a way that we can be right with him through faith and repentance. And the church said, amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the ways that you have called us into fellowship with you. Always in your mind, you had a certain people in mind to save all the way before the ages began. I pray for those that are here this morning that's able to hear your word preached to them. I pray for them to be encouraged by that. For those that are struggling in any type of way, Lord, I pray that they can be uh, reminded of how you were thinking of them before they were ever thinking of you. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We give you all of the praise and all of the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.